0: On July 10th, an aid convoy crossed from Turkey into northern Syria. It carried life-saving aid that the population relies upon for basic survival. On July 11th, the United Nations Security Council held a vote to determine the fate of these cross-border aid deliveries into northern Syria. The result of the voting is as follows. 13 votes in favour, one vote against... One abstention. The draft resolution has not been adopted owing to the negative vote of a permanent member of the council. That negative vote came from Russia. The Russian veto of the resolution effectively halted the delivery of aid, marked the latest disruption to aid deliveries and yet another devastating blow for the people living in northern Syria. With news of the Russian veto... The Assad regime in the capital Damascus announced that they would give their conditional permission for cross border aid to enter northern Syria for six months. On the surface, good news, but in very real terms, merely a facade for the government in Damascus to continue their brutal oppression that has become their hallmark. This week on the New Arab Voice, what is the fate of cross border aid into northern Syria? Why is the Assad regime's involvement so problematic? And how is stagnating diplomacy on the UN Security Council impacting aid efforts? My name is Hugo Goodridge, and you're listening to The New Arab Voice. The UN has been operating cross-border deliveries from Turkey into northern Syria for the past eight years. These deliveries have served as a lifeline for the people living there.
1: So the humanitarian needs are enormous in this tiny northwestern enclave of Syria. And they are growing and they continue to grow.
0: This is Natasha Hall, Senior Fellow with the Centre for Strategic and International Studies
1: from just 2021 to 2022, the number of people in need in the Northwest actually jumped by 20% to to almost the entire population. So over 4 million people. Uh, And the majority are, are women and children. And this is of course, before the devastating earthquake in February that killed thousands of people in Northwest Syria and injured and rendered homeless tens of thousands more. Um, You have about 80% of people unemployed. You have about 800,000 kids out of school. And you have most of a population that's been forcibly displaced, not just once, but nearly two dozen times in many cases. Uh, And so you still have two million people living in camps.
0: Where once there were four border crossings, successive battles at the UN Security Council whittled that number until recently down to one, the Bab al-Hawa crossing. This goes from Turkey and into the northwestern Syrian governorate of Idlib, where 70% of the aid recipients shelter. The Security Council mandate for cross-border aid secured the delivery of food and medicine, but also ensured continued funding.
1: But also to fund programs, to implement programs, that are then delivered by NGOs and others. So it's not just the actual physical trucks that go across the border, but it's also, you know, salaries, it's schools, it's hospitals, it's a lot of other sort of things that happen in in, in northwest Syria.
0: The need for aid has existed for as long as the Assad regime has been indiscriminately bombing civilian areas and displacing populations. As the war in Syria has continued year after year, Populations have been forced from one area to the next, searching for safety. This has led over 4 million people to Idlib, one of the last remaining areas not under the control of Syrian President Bashar al Assad. As a strong ally of Assad and a permanent member of the UN Security Council, Russia has sought to protect the Syrian regime from accountability and diplomatic attacks. This includes vetoing extensions of the UN mandate to deliver aid. In the past, these vetoes have been followed by a period of condemnation and then negotiation and then compromise and concessions. And finally, generally, Russia agreeing to an extension and then the lifeline being extended by another six months or so.
1: I think that Russia has faced a lot of humiliating defeats in the past year, namely in Ukraine and most recently with the head of Wagner, who really attempted a coup recently, as many people will remember. And so, you know, I think that this is basically a way for a caged tiger to lash out at the world. And one of those has been, unfortunately, the Syria cross-border mechanism and the other, the Black Sea Grain Initiative. And I think that it essentially seems like it's Putin's strategy or the Kremlin's strategy to you know, wait this out, make everyone suffer a bit, see how much they need them, and then maybe come back for additional concessions. It's not clear that that's what's going to happen. It does seem like the international community may be galvanising around Plan Bs, but it remains to be seen.
0: As usual, the opposing members of the Security Council were quick to condemn. On July 12th, the day after Russia's veto, U.S. State Department spokesman Matthew Miller spoke to reporters. Um,
2: Yeah, I would say that the United States is deeply disappointed by Russia's uh, inhumane veto of cross-border humanitarian assistance for Syria. We have repeatedly said that the United Nations Security Council should authorize a 12-month extension uh, of cross-border access into Syria in order to secure this vital lifeline for the Syrian people. Uh, Russia blocked this resolution despite overwhelming council support and the calls of UN Secretary General, UN humanitarian agencies and NGOs working on the ground. Uh, For our part, the United States will continue to support the Syrian people and we remain committed to reauthorizing the cross-border mechanism. It's a moral and humanitarian imperative and the Syrian people are counting on uh, us to get this done, so we will
1: stay at it uh, to try to accomplish that.
0: But before the warring parties could get back around the table for the usual deal-making, the Assad regime in Damascus stepped in. On July 13th, Syrian ambassador to the UN, Bassam Sabah, made an announcement. The government of the Syrian Arab Republic has taken the sovereign decision to grant the United Nations and its specialized agencies permission to use Babel Hawa crossing to deliver humanitarian aid to civilian need in the northwest Syria. full cooperation and coordination with the Syrian government for the period of six months starting uh, from July 13, 2023. At first glance, it may appear that the Syrian government is extending a hand to those in need. But the devil is in the detail. And here, the devil is in the phrase... In full cooperation and coordination with the Syrian government... for Natasha Hall again.
1: Namely, that the Syrian Arab Red Crescent sort of oversee these operations... And the other very important criteria was that the U.N. agencies and and others being supported by this mechanism could not communicate with local authorities on the ground in northwest Syria. So U.N. OCHA immediately said that this was not operable.
0: OCHA is the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs.
1: Because you always need to communicate with local authorities when you're delivering assistance anywhere in the world. And certainly not operable for the Syrian Arab Red Crescent to be sort of overseeing these operations, given the Syrian Arab Red Crescent is essentially an arm of the Syrian government.
0: If you are delivering aid, but are not permitted to communicate with any of the authorities in the area, then logistically, the task becomes almost impossible. A pretty major black mark against Syria's outstretched humanitarian hand. But an insistence, that delivery must be overseen by the Syrian Arab Red Crescent, makes it impossible.
1: And, you know, has been active in many of the problems that we've seen with Syrian aid delivery in government-controlled areas, namely that it's been diverted, uh, it's been withheld, it's been ransacked before getting to areas not under government control. So those are sort of the operable issues with it. The overarching issue with it, of course, is that the Syrian regime has been using aid as a tool of war for 12 years.
0: Over the course of the war, the Assad regime has weaponized aid in some of the most unconscionable ways imaginable. In 2016, there were reports of aid recipients finding broken glass and animal excrement in rice. In 2018, it was reported that government officials had stripped away 70% of medical aid deliveries destined for the besieged Damascus suburb of eastern Ghouta, preventing trauma kits, surgical kits, insulin and other vital material from reaching the area. That's the same eastern Ghouta that was attacked with chemical weapons by the Syrian regime. Food baskets have also frequently been diverted away from the starving to feed Assad's army. The current president of the Syrian Arab Red Crescent is Khaled Habuberti. Previously the owner of a casino, nightclub, and numerous other businesses, he has strong ties to President Assad, who handpicked him for the role in 2016.
1: By 2017, in spite of the cross-border mechanism, those areas not under government control and also not contiguous with one of those border crossings, Uh, were essentially besieged. So we saw about 5 million people in besieged and hard-to-reach areas in 2017. And so the notion that the Syrian government would once again be able to basically have a chokehold over the 4 million people that are in northwest Syria is quite traumatising, I think, for the people on the ground.
0: For the Assad regime, permitting the delivery of cross-border aid is an opportunity to fill its pockets. But additionally, it hopes to earn some image points on the international stage.
1: The Syrian regime, of course, would give this permission, as they have in times past, to win the goodwill of of sort of the the international community, only to withhold it at a particularly necessary time, right? At a particularly militarily advantageous time. We saw this with de-escalation zones throughout the war as well where the Syrian regime would sign on to, to basically cease fires in certain parts of the country as it faced other fronts. But as soon as it was able to defeat enemies in other parts of the country, there was no more de-escalation agreement. And we saw all of those areas fall, eastern Huta, southern Syria, places like Dara, throughout the country, northern Homs. So, so again, this is sort of part of a, of a military tactic as well
0: if Syria believed that their offer would be welcomed by the international community, then they were sorely mistaken.
1: The, the Syrian government's letter and its different caveats is just, it's not operable. So if if nothing could be done oh, in, in terms of, of those conditions, then it can't be accepted. And this is kind of what, what many of the governments have been saying, uh, finally coming out publicly and saying so.
0: On July 19th, U.S. Senior Advisor for U.N. Security Council Affairs Jeffrey De Laurentiis addressed the U.N. General Assembly.
1: All agree. The proposed way forward announced by the Syrian regime on July 13 is not a workable substitute. Let me repeat that. It is not a workable substitute. Any acceptance of the regime's attempt to impose unprecedented constraints on the U.N.'s humanitarian operations Could have grave consequences for humanitarian relief efforts in other locations and must be rejected." But from the statements that we just heard at the UN General Assembly, it does seem like some major governments, uh, donor governments such as the United States and Canada, the the representatives at the General Assembly will reject the regime's offer, not just because it's non-operational according to their conditions, but also because of the overall conflict context and the, the Syrian regime's, let's say, reputation for systematic denial and diversion of assistance and targeting of humanitarian workers and operations.
0: To see the issue of UN cross-border aid deliveries be returned to the Security Council would likely require the US and its allies to make a series of concessions to Russia. The concessions that Russia would seek would likely be related to its ongoing war in Ukraine. Alongside aid deliveries to northern Syria, Russia is trying a similar strategy with its decision to pull out of the Black Sea Grain Deal. For many years, the UN has been the main operator of aid missions in northern Syria. But it's not the only aid organisation in the area. NGOs, funded privately, can and do operate in the region but they do not currently have the capacity to fill the space created by an end to UN aid operations.
1: Essentially, humanitarian aid operations can continue without UN agencies. But the issue is logistical. It is quite difficult for many of the major donor governments to continue to provide assistance through local NGOs or even international NGOs in the same way that they have through the UN which is why uh, so many governments have really sort of held on to this UN mandate. And they also feel like it gives them probably some protection from whatever the Russian backlash or the Syrian regime backlash would be if they didn't have their consent, either direct or indirect, for the cross-border mechanism.
0: Last year, UN officials estimated that NGOs could cover 30 to 40% of the aid provided by the UN. This is a pretty big shortfall. However, it's not impossible that, given enough funding and time to expand operations, they could meet demand. Equally, it's worth remembering that the need for aid is extremely urgent and donor fatigue is a growing problem. As bleak as the situation is, and it's very bleak for the people of northern Syria, this latest development could serve as an opportunity
1: so i think that you know there this is a bit of an inflection point to acknowledge that this 6 month renewal process is unworkable and has been unworkable for some time i've argued and many others have argued that you know in spite of the renewals the uncertainty around the renewal process has already atrophied the response as it is it makes it really difficult to hire for positions for, you know, human- international humanitarian aid positions. It makes it very difficult to continue the programs that will need to be in place for a protracted crisis, things like hospitals and schools and things that don't operate in six-month increments. I still believe that the UN is, is, um, is valid for international advocacy, for, uh, for protection, but In lieu of that, I would rather see a very robust uh, cross-border mechanism with or without the United Nations.
0: This most recent bout of an uncertain aid future for the people of northern Syria came from the UN Security Council. It's a perfectly valid question to ask. How did we end up here? What does a small group of nations over 9,000 kilometres away get to decide who does... And doesn't get life-saving aid. Starting with the basics, the United Nations Security Council. What is it and why is it involved?
2: The UN Security Council was founded at the end of the Second World War to essentially be the security directorate for the world.
0: This is Richard Gowan, the UN director for the International Crisis Group.
2: Uh, That was the original design, but it's never really lived up to that uh, expectation. Uh, During long periods of the Cold War, the Council was more or less paralysed. And even though the Council has been much more active since the 1990s, we have seen it struggling under the weight of tensions between some of its main veto-holding powers. Most obviously tensions between the US on the one hand and Russia and China on the other.
0: Despite tensions between the sides, they have been able to come to mutual understandings and occasionally some agreements.
2: So that can be maintaining a sanctions regime on North Korea. It can be maintaining humanitarian aid to Afghanistan. And until this month, it also involved maintaining a framework to get humanitarian aid into parts of Syria that Damascus does not control.
0: The Security Council mandate to deliver aid to areas of Syria outside the government's control dates back to 2014.
2: And it was set up at the height of the civil war. It was set up in a period when no one was sure who was going to come out as the winner. And at that time, it it was actually a much more extensive mandate for the UN to get aid into parts of the country beyond Damascus's reach. Now, obviously, since 2014, the Assad government has emerged as the de facto winner of this conflict, even though it doesn't control significant stretches of territory.
0: The argument that Russia now frequently makes at the Security Council is that because of the Assad regime's quote unquote battlefield win, the Assad regime alone should be the only authority who decides where aid goes. But as previously mentioned, this leaves more than a bitter taste in the mouth. With the Assad regime coming out and giving their own mandate for cross-border aid, one question that has been circulating among UN diplomats is whether the recent events were a coordinated plan between allies Russia and Syria, or whether Syria jumped at an opportunity presented by the Russian veto.
2: There are two theories. One is that Russia was quite deliberately manoeuvring to close down the mandate and create space for Syria to jump in, and assert its authority over humanitarian deliveries. The other theory is that uh, there was just some ca- chaos, there was just some confusion, and the Syrians saw an opportunity and, and took it, and the Russians, the Russians were not really being quite so cunning. What we do, I think, all agree is that now Syria has made this move, now Syria has asserted its right to decide who gets to supply aid to Idlib, the Russians are not going to drop Damascus. They, they will back up what Damascus has done, uh, whether or not this was their plan from the get-go.
0: Russia hasn't been alone in saying that the Security Council has no authority to decide who can get aid. On the other side, many are saying the same thing, not as an argument for the Assad regime taking over, but as an argument for it not being the Security Council.
2: A very esteemed group of international lawyers have come up with arguments saying that actually, under international humanitarian law, the UN doesn't need approval from either Damascus or the Council, that it could keep on delivering aid. But this continues to be a matter of legal dispute. And it's no secret that the rather conservative international lawyers who work for the UN are very nervous about sort of saying that aid could just keep flowing without either form of, of approval.
0: The mandate given by the Assand regime is unworkable, but also is only for six months. This opens up the possibility that the issue could return to the UN Security Council in six months' time. We could then find ourselves back where we started. Russia using its veto and seeking concessions from other member states on unrelated issues. So what about this veto? if it's just being used to keep aid from some of the most vulnerable people on the planet, then what's the point of it?
2: You know, the the reason the big powers insisted on having the veto in 1945 is that essentially they understood that if you didn't have the veto, if you had majority voting, the likelihood would be that the council would fall apart. Because, you know, if Russia didn't have the veto in the Security Council... If it was on the receiving end of a huge number of negative and critical resolutions over its behavior in ukraine or syria it would most most likely just walk away from the u.n i mean that's what we saw japan do in the 1930s um, when it walked out of the league of nations that's what we saw germany do in the 1930s and i think that if russia felt that it didn't have any ability to stop this sort of criticism in in the u.n It would probably just walk away from multilateral engagement, full stop.
0: The veto is available to all permanent members of the Security Council, namely China, the United States, France, the United Kingdom and Russia, the victors of the Second World War. Neither the UK or France has used their veto since 1989 against a draft resolution condemning the United States invasion of Panama. The US has made more use of its veto, particularly to block resolutions that condemn Israel. China has in recent years joined its ally Russia in vetoes, but has not cast a lone veto since 1999, instead preferring to abstain from votes. Russia has been a lot more liberal with its veto powers in the 21st century, blocking any criticism of its military actions in Georgia, Syria and, of course, Ukraine. These Russian vetoes have prompted many to ask whether it's time to get rid of the veto or perhaps put some limits on its use. I mean, at a
2: technical level, it is very, very hard to put constraints on the veto because it's something which is embedded in the UN Charter. But reforming the UN Charter is uh, an exceptionally difficult process in procedural and political terms.
0: For the time being, at least, the veto is here to stay.
2: So to some extent... The the veto is a safety valve that means that the big powers feel that they can stay in this system and defend their interests. I, and I think most UN watchers, would be the first to admit that, seen from the outside, uh, this seems like a very, very perverse mechanism. And it's a mechanism that allows the US to invade Iraq without um, having resolutions targeting it. Or similarly, that Russia to behave in a pretty dreadful way. An absolutely dreadful way towards Ukraine without um, absorbing penalties.
0: Maybe they can't or won't make changes to the veto. But there have been other suggestions for reforms.
2: Other countries such as India and Brazil step up and say mm, the real issue is not the veto. It's the fact that the Security Council is not representative of the world order as it is today. You know, Britain and France, too much reduced powers, continue to have permanent seats. India, Brazil, Japan, Nigeria do not. And so for that group of countries, the real question is how do you change the membership of the council? And so the debate shifts away from the veto and it shifts on to who should have permanent seats. And then that creates all sorts of knock-on arguments um, about who represents which regions and so on and so forth. So the debate gets complicated very, very quickly. At the end of the day, you cannot have any council reform without two-thirds of the members of the UN ratifying it and all the five permanent members ratifying it. So, I mean, that's a very, very high set of bars to jump. Even if the US could find a, a formula that it liked, it would need to convince China and Russia that it was a good formula for them too. So I think we're going to be talking about reform a lot. I think we have to recognize that the chances are that reform won't be possible. And so I think you're then left with a question, which is, can we continue to make the best of this deeply imperfect body, especially at a moment when one of the veto powers, Russia, is, is locked in a sort of massive confrontation with three of the others, the US, UK and France
0: any reforms to either the Security Council or the veto would be an incredibly steep hill to climb. But there is a chance that if reforms are not made, the Security Council could find itself becoming less relevant.
2: I think what we have seen over the last year and a half, basically going back to the escalation of the Ukraine crisis, is that African leaders, African leaders inside the council and outside the council, are beginning to be much more explicit that they, they just don't think that this body, so badly uh, sort of compromised by great power politics, really is a legitimate authority to decide how to deal with crises in Africa. And so you know, inside the council, we've seen the African countries, the African members, insisting that the UN should stay away from crisis management in Sudan, for example, after the recent breakdown in Sudan. They've been arguing that the African Union should be allowed to lead in Sudan. And to some extent, other countries have respected that. I think the African Union increasingly believes that in future, when when you need peacekeeping forces on the continent, they should primarily be deployed under the authority of of the AU or other African organisations. And clearly, this is in part a response to the perceived and real dysfunction of the Security Council. So yeah, I mean, the Security Council is damaging its own credibility. This is not unprecedented. In the 1990s, uh, European countries turned against the UN after the the horrors of the Balkan Wars and the Srebrenica massacre. I mean, basically, you had UN peacekeepers in, in Europe in large numbers in the 1990s. They failed in the former Yugoslavia. And from that moment forward, European politicians have, you know, they've never really trusted the UN. They put their trust in NATO or the EU. Now we're seeing, I think, African countries follow the same pattern and saying that African organisations should have autonomy over what what happens in the continent.
0: The United Nations Security Council is far from perfect. And in the face of a number of protracted crises around the world, is facing a challenging time. It'd be wrong to describe it as a fight for its survival. The Security Council is here to stay. But more questions will be asked, and will be asked more loudly if it is seen to stand in the way of vital humanitarian aid. Whatever happens at the Security Council in New York, it will be the people of northern Syria who will have to live through their decisions. Final words to Natasha Hall.
1: I mean, I think they're terrified. The situation is already not good in northwest Syria. This is the population that was unable to get out of Syria. We're talking about the elderly, the injured women and children. This is already a very vulnerable population. There was many, many people that I speak to on a regular basis that you know, they get a food basket maybe if they're lucky, and they have to sell that food basket for life-saving medicine for a relative of theirs. So this is already a very insecure um, population on top of the really extensive trauma that they've undergone. There's at least one family that I know that after the earthquake, it had been the second time the family was dug up from under the rubble. First by regime bombing and then by an earthquake. So the notion that they would once again be under the thumb of this very same regime that they have gone through immense suffering not to live under is, uh, I think, quite an overwhelming prospect.
0: This episode of The New Arab Voice was written and produced by me, Hugo Goodrich. Our theme music was by Omar El-Phil. The New Arab Voice will be back next week. Until then, you can find all our previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. You can also check out our Instagram page and Twitter account, both at The New Arab Voice, for additional content. We also have a weekly newsletter which you can sign up for. Find the link in the show notes. You can subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode and you can also rate and review, which helps us spread the word. Don't forget to follow The New Arab on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for all the latest news, analysis and opinion from the region.